So I have a tough question for you folks. Would you rather have your parents in one of Cuomo's nursing homes or your daughter interning in his office? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Ruthless. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. Oh, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Well, hello and welcome to the Ruthless Variety Program, Smug. That was a hell of an entry. It's a tough one. I mean, hey, we told you the guy was a monster, but it turns like he's a he's a monster of, of, of many habits. The guy has already been known in New York, especially for just like bullying and, you know, turning the state into his little kingdom uh, now that he's got a damn supermajority in the legislature. But it's a lot worse than just killing folks. He, he's also mistreating women. And, you know, I'm honestly I, I, I'm not surprised. He's just an absolute pig and always has been total monster. There are many reasons why people listen to the Ruthless Variety program. Mm-hmm. Some like the singing, some like the dancing and the entertainment. There are others who like the story before the story. Yep. And if you notice, we've been talking about Cuomo for longer than anybody else. Yeah. And, and that's another thing. I mean, you know what? We should just get right into this. I want to I go like a half hour into Cuomo because there's yeah, we so do, much but, to be said. But I do, I do need to also tease... Because this is a very desired interview that we have. The men right. all over us to get Congresswoman Elise Stefanik in the program. And she came on today at a wonderful interview. This very topic is a passion project of hers. She was the first member of the uh, New York congressional delegation to call on Cuomo to resign. She's been all over it. I think you'll enjoy everything she has to say on the topic. Yeah, absolute fan favorite. And like you said, she's been the tip of the spear in in fighting Cuomo, calling him out. And uh, New York State's a better place now that she got reelected. Can I, can I also say she was a little offended you didn't show up for an interview? I feel so terrible. I feel so terrible. I had, I, had, I had to run outside of my home with short notice. And then I got that call from Ashbrook. And I was like, man, I honestly shouldn't have even answered this call. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, she's kind of a big deal. You just totally stiffed her like that. I apologize, Congresswoman. I absolutely will make that one up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're an elusive figure. You do what you do. (laughs) Anyway, let's get right into it because Cuomo has had a very bad stretch here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's getting worse all of the time. Uh, We were aware of the nursing home debacle because Janice Dean, our guest, last week started educating on that yep. uh, last spring. Mm-hmm. We were aware of the fixed numbers because it came out uh, about a month ago that he had been manipulating statistics of deaths in nursing homes. Lying to the feds. Lying to the feds, of which I still think there's going to be some significant sort of criminal liability there at some point, but mm-hmm. we'll see where that, where that leads. And now we found out last week that an employee uh, elaborated upon her sexual harassment claims uh, in a New York Times. Initially, an essay that she wrote on Medium mm-hmm. was picked up in the New York Times, which I look, let me just say this about the New York Times. They are reliably lefty. They parrot the left wing narrative more than you know maybe any other publication. They've been all over this Cuomo thing. Yeah. All over. And they should be because they were apologizing and and absolutely championing him for a full calendar year while he was doing all of this stuff and they should have known about it. And, you know, that is that is something is, you you know, if you look across the spectrum at all the left leaning publications, you know, the New York Times did did start covering this. Other ones like the bulwark. I haven't said a word. I haven't seen anything on Cuomo from them. Right. No, they don't get that. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's pathetic. It's pathetic. But anyway, so uh, this woman comes out last week and said uh, a a whole bunch of different extremely inappropriate 
things that he had done to her and make her feel uncomfortable over a series of years. And, and including asking her to play strip poker at one point, gave her an unsolicited kiss apparently on mm. the lips, which is just like, I can't even imagine a sitting governor thinking that's appropriate with an employee. I mean, it's just like in the 1950s, that would have been inappropriate. Yeah. yeah. You know? uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, the gall of him. And like, I was, I was, I was starting to get into it is, you know, this is a guy who, who, who was basically handed the keys to the kingdom by his father, you know, uh, was always told, you know, you little Prince Ling, you're going to be the king of New York someday. Uh, you deserve to be able to do whatever you want, you know, and he's, he's really governed in that fashion, the way that he has with that damn supermajority, the way he has just crushed any dissenting opinion and just ruled that state with an iron fist and threat, you know, it's well known now, but it's always been well known that he threatens uh, journalists, employees, opponents, anyone who disagrees with them. He, he threatens and, and says, I will ruin your life if you don't do as I ask. So this, the, you know, this continues that trend. He had folks covering for his essentially just he was giving seniors a death sentence the way he had set up these uh, senior centers for COVID. Um, So this is what you can expect from someone who's so morally bankrupt. So completely morally bankrupt and and used to getting his own way, this really turns over the weekend when a second former aide came out and accused Cuomo of a very similar sexual harassment story. The woman here, and I'm gonna gonna quote from the New York Times, Charlotte Bennett, a 25-year-old former aide of the governor, accused him of sexually harassing her last year, telling the New York Times that Cuomo had asked her about her sex life and whether she had ever had sex with older men. What a fucking creep. I mean, are you kidding me? This is, this is the governor. Um, here's her quote. I just feel horrible for this young woman. Uh, quote, I understood that the governor wanted to sleep with me and felt... I felt horribly uncomfortable and scared and was wondering how I was going to get out of it and assumed it was the end of my job. I mean, look, we've talked an awful lot as a society about the Me Too movement, and we saw uh, liberal Democratic hack activists try to hijack that for the purposes of of partisan warfare with, with like Justice Kavanaugh, for example. The great irony of what we're seeing here with Governor Cuomo is that this is the chickens are all coming home to roost. Yeah, he was he was at the forefront of that. He was calling on all these investigations into Kavanaugh because wasn't it Michael Avenatti? This this attorney, Michael Avenatti, who's now, if I understand correctly, in like a federal prison, right? Um, put forth these accusations completely unfounded. Uh, against Kavanaugh saying that, oh, when he was in college, this guy was involved in a, in a gang rape circle. Um, and, and Cuomo ran with it. You know, that's that's the thing is he was useful to the Dems when they were like, we need we need somebody who's going to be like a foil and just attack Trump nonstop. He's going to the, the way that the media turned Cuomo into this like hero of the coronavirus when it first started of like, wow, they're, they're calling him like the heartthrob governor and all this insane stuff. And you had him with his brother on CNN yucking it up. Well, actually, he's the one who's killing people and he's the one who's abusing women. Yeah, the thing I find so interesting about all of this, and there's also some parallels with the crisis we have at the southern border now with what used to be kids in cages is now overflow facilities for migrant children, right? During Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, uh, Michael Avenatti's, who, who, as you said, Smug, is now in prison. He had a client, Julie Swetnick, who accused Judge Kavanaugh of serial gang rape, serial gang rape. And she was put on national television without substantiation. Yeah, NBC, right, wasn't it? Yeah. And they brought that up in a hearing, a nationally televised hearing on Capitol Hill. In yeah, front in front of, of his, in front of his wife and daughters, I might add. Yeah. 
And now, suddenly, you don't have to believe all women. Right. It's, it's not believe all women. It's, well, you know, there's a lot of facts at play. Things are complex. We need an investigation. And all of that's fine. All of that's, that's good. But that was never the standard in the Trump era. And let me tell you, I, I still feel this intense rage. Me too. When I get that mental image of uh, Justice Kavanaugh's wife crying with her children present on what's supposed to be a happy day of this guy who's been who lived his entire life straight as an arrow to become a Supreme Court justice. Do you know how much like work that is? Like, <laughs> I mean, he, he's devoted his entire life to this kind of a track. And to have them bring out Michael Avenatti and this like carnival of, of, of morons and liars to create these accusations and then to have a Democrat governor and, the, and, and like Cuomo say that, oh, my God, this is fact. And he's got he's got to go right now. It's infuriating. They gave well, him an Emmy. They gave him a fucking they gave Emmy. him an Emmy. They gave him an Emmy. Well, he deserved one for the acting job that he did back then. And, yeah. and all yeah, him, him and Weinstein <laughs> deserves a lot of awards. I mean, they, they are they are amongst the best political actors we've seen in our generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the, there's one facet that I get hung up on on all of this, which is, you know, sometimes there are people who are more than you think or they, they've got to live a different life that you don't know about. Even close friends, you know, you sometimes find out people are into things you don't completely know about. That's not the case with Andrew Cuomo, yep. right? This is not somebody who people around him immediately reacted to these two accusations and said, oh, he would never be capable of something mm-hmm. like that. The governor himself didn't react that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he reacted as though this was, oh, well, yeah, I'm sorry they took it the wrong way. Yeah, he put out that statement, didn't he, where he was like, oh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry these people were offended by my jokes. Yeah, There was a little tell. There was a little tell as well, um, which I know some people on Twitter were particularly offended by, where uh, Governor Cuomo uh, mentions that he had previously counseled um, one of these accusers about their experience, their previous experience with sexual assault, which is a little wink. That, yeah. And maybe they're not credible. Maybe this, you know? person, maybe this person is just a serial accuser. Ah. He's like, hey, guys, she's crazy. Am I right, guys? It's, I mean, it, it, it's this guy was the champion for, for the liberal movement where they were like, this guy's a heartthrob. Wow. Look at him. What a great job he's doing. He should run for president. There were there were articles that were put out saying that he's like the most eligible bachelor in America. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable what the media does. But I, I, I think I just find the whole the whole thing completely amazing and that how how me too is sort of politicized and used as a democratic weapon and it ultimately is coming to fruition the goals of the me too movement are coming to fruition by brave women like the ones that we just talked about about brave women like you know frankly like like people like janice dean and elise mm-hmm. stefanik who we have today who are actually elevating these concerns you, you, you recall um uh what's her name the, the senator from new york gillibrand yep she she absolutely was adamant about Al Franken leaving the, the United States Senate because it suited her political purpose as a contender in a Democratic primary. She's, have she said anything about this Cuomo situation? Nope. nope. I've heard nothing. Like, like literally nothing. The standard that was elevated for Kavanaugh versus the standard that they're applying here is ridiculous. And back to my original point, everyone knew that this is the way that Cuomo has operated. Which is yep. why I found so hilarious the tape that came out of him several years ago at a New York State Fair interacting with a journalist. Yeah, we got to play that. I mean, this will tell you. Everyone knew. Yeah, so, so let me get let me get the, the, the context for this. So the, the context for this is he's at the New York State Fair um, and and Cuomo is sitting at a round table in this in this hall with his family and presumably some other folks, and journalists are gathered around the table doing their job. Right, they're covering the the guy as he's the governor as he's as he's eating. He somehow locks eyes with this woman, who's report local reporter, um, a younger journalist, 
who's watching him eat a sausage, right? And immediately he starts engaging her about whether she'd like to eat the sausage, right? Jesus. And ultimately beckons the waiter over to say, bring this young lady. She's, by the way, she's standing with all of her colleagues. Like she's a journalist who's standing with all of her colleagues in a professional setting, trying to report the story of what the governor is up to at this event. And he orders her this just massive sausage, which like, I don't even know where to begin to explain how inappropriate that is at any point, but let alone as a governor of a state and a journalist that is, that is covering what you're doing there. So he orders this thing up and they send it over. Let's play the audio on this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I don't know if I should eat the whole sausage in front of you, but I'm definitely going to eat it. You got to eat the whole sausage. Yuck, 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 yuck. Like that really is so insane. Like, uh, you know, like even Mad Men era. Like Don, if you did that on Don Draper, he'd be like, well, hold on, buddy. I mean, it's just so, it's just so dramatically. Now, the woman has said that she didn't feel like she was being sexually harassed at the time. So, you know, like, oh, look, I'll disclose that. That's fine. And that's, look, she's a professional entitled to her opinion in, of the way that that went down. Imagine a scenario where a man in power in any professional setting orders a woman who is job it is to, to cover, or in this, you know, in this sense, document what this person is doing, orders a sausage and then demands she eat the whole thing in front of him. I mean, imagine bizarre. It's bizarre, bizarre behavior. It's not something. And then he's kind of like looking around and smiling a little bit. And you know, it's, it's not like overt sexual harassment, I guess. Actually, I think it is actually, but, but it's not ultimately what it is, is a good signal to everybody what this guy's doing. It's and, a fucking power move. Yep. And, power and I, and I think it's, it's, it's a, it's such a tell that he was like looking around and knew no one would speak up because that's the way he operates. That's right. He knew number one, I think he knew how, how like way out of line that is. And I bet that's his thing too, is, is he likes knowing he has that power that I can do whatever I want and I can look around the room and everyone better act like whatever I want is okay. I mean, that's basically what they got going on. Mm -hmm. So look, you know, as, as Republicans are thinking about the way back, right? And what does the political road look like to get Republicans back to power? It's an even mix between the right candidates, the right issues, the politics at bay and, the, and taking advantage of the right opportunities. This is clearly a, a person who represents a systemic failing of New York politics yep. by Democrats over a period of time that has given people exactly the opposite of what they say they want. You have a misogynistic, power-hungry career politician sitting on top of the ambitions the safety, the security of all the people in an extremely difficult situation, right? Time for a change. Like re Republicans in New York have not had a lot to talk about lately. It seems to me like this is a real opportunity. Yeah, and we, and we that is such it. a perfect statement. Let me tell you, it is exactly the perfect diagnosis of what's happened there. Every time I go back, you know, every time I'm at home in New York, it's heartbreaking what has happened to that city and that state because that party, you know, one party rule has completely atrophied the place. There's, the, there's a lot of doom around the, the future prospects of the Republican party, which is of course complete horseshit mm -hmm. and the media likes to play that up. Um, you know, for some of our younger listeners who may not remember this period of time, but in 2000 and nine you know republicans won the governor's mansion in virginia and, and in new jersey um then we flipped a senate seat in massachusetts and illinois yeah so your stuff matters man it happens it really right 
Right, right. And and, and you say, oh, well, it's fucking New York. You know, it's New York. It's, you know, it's corrupt. Democrats own it. No, this is a fight we should have because he's a piece of shit. It's a fight we should have. I ask Elise about this specifically because I think she's a a uniquely credible voice in New York that people just absolutely revere. You'll be interested to hear what she has to say. But in the meantime, we're going to stay on it. Listen, folks, we stayed on the Lincoln Project. Boom. Gone. You know, we stayed on various aspects of the Biden Biden, uh, campaign and administration that have blown up. I mean, I feel like we're on, we've got a hot hand here. Neera Tandon is sort of teetering on the brink. She's almost there. We almost, we Cuomo almost got that is, done. is the one thing that we've really spent a lot of time on. Listen, you know, when we're talking about it. The power your, of Ruthless. Keep your eye on it. But in the meantime, let's play some games. Oh, the people so of the games. I'm so excited. Let's hit the game show music. So we got a little we got a little different thing uh, this episode with uh, you know the COVID package. Uh, we decided that instead of playing King of the Hill today, and and, and we are going to play King of the Hill. I think we'll probably do it on the Thursday episode. We're going to instead do kind of like a Wheel of Fortune sort of game here mm-hmm. with the COVID package. And basically, Ooh. the setup is. Holmes and Smug uh, are going to get some spins at the wheel, and we're going to figure out, uh, you know, what sort of pork barrel programs the Democrats have put in here into this COVID package. Yeah, uh, honestly, it should it should be called a quote COVID package. It's basically <laughs> just like dem wish list package that they're trying to say must be passed now well it's a it's a goodie bag it's Mm -hmm. a goodie bag and that's the point of this game is we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna spin the wheel and we're gonna we're gonna total it up after after two rounds holmes and and smug get two rounds uh and and then we're going to uh determine who the winner is okay all right all right let's get this because this is what it's like to be a progressive fat cat in Washington, D.C. under unified government. Pretty That's much. right. That's we right. We have our first taste of that, Smug. Here it is. Yeah, you're a member of the Appropriations Committee and uh, unified democratic government, and you got your hand out. Gimme, 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 gimme. <laughs> Special interest gimme. All right, so so who's going to spin first? I'm going to spin first. <laughs> Give it I'm going to spin the wheel. Let's you're going to spin the wheel. <laughs> Okay, let's get that spin. Well, what do we got here? Okay, wow. We have 86 billion in a bailout for union pensions. 86 billion? Ooh, I'm gonna write that down. 86 billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These now that's a spin. These pensions have been in, billion. in crisis for years. Uh, you know, so these are the, these are just to put a finer point on. These are the pension programs that the unions unilaterally promised, right? That that the union jobs that they create, they just promise people these pensions and these whatever. That now the taxpayers are actually having to pay out because the unions themselves can't. So I, I mean. This may be a dumb question, but what does this have to do with COVID? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking nothing. <laughs> 86 billion. I'll take it. That's a hot spin. B. Let's Free go. B. All right, let me, roll, let me roll this sucker. All right, Holmes, here's your spin. Come on, baby. Ooh. Holy shit. Reopening schools. Ooh. Ooh. That's a big one, folks. A hundred and 29 billion oh that's not that wait that's not fair they already got how much they already got how much that they haven't spent 65 billion or something right 
Yeah, oh, yeah. No, no, no. They've gotten they've, that's the best part is that they, they there's like 60 some odd billion that was spent last year and the schools there are, still aren't open. Yeah, but they didn't even spend the money like yeah. they, were, they were already allocated right. like 60 some billion and they right. haven't spent at all. Oh, I'm sorry, Smug. Were you under the impression this was about opening schools? Oh, my God. <laughs> they were appropriated last year. Sixty eight billion dollars. And 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 the greatest part is that only five billion has been spent so far, and they they're getting another. What was the number? One hundred twenty nine. Are you kidding me? It's listen, it's a, you know, it's a fucking extortion racket, is what it is. Imagine the teachers' lounge after all this, right? Oh boy, I mean, those vending machines don't pay for themselves. I'm I mean, listen, I mean, if, if these teachers refuse to teach, they they should all have Lamborghinis, essentially. Like that's that's the dim plan. We should find. We should run the math on that and figure out how much it is. I to bet, like every teacher like, could get at least a Tesla. Like, holy shit! I bet it's in the ballpark. <laughs> I bet it's in the ballpark. Wow! Right, they haven't even spin. spent the sixty bill. Those were some good spins. So eight, you know, for our listeners at home, that's eighty-six billion, a bailout for union pensions for for smug, and. Uh, Holmes kind of hit the jackpot here with uh, reopening schools at 129 billion. That is insane money. So those are our first round totals. Let's spin again. I'll take the first spin in the second round. Oh, you're gonna spin. You're gonna spin first. Yeah. Okay. Snake Let's that spin. Okay. You have landed on 17 billion uh, mm-hmm. for veteran affairs. Mm. The thing that's very interesting about this, worthy a worthy cause, as it seems. Well, of course, it's a worthy cause. the The problem is that the VA has ten billion sitting unused from the twenty billion that was provided through the CARES Act a year ago. A year ago. You know, this is I I I don't know, man. I I maybe I just don't understand how government works. Why aren't they just spending the money they have? (laughs) They already oh. took it from people. Oh, oh, smug. You wouldn't be able to leverage the support of these poor uh, uh, interest groups if you couldn't promise a little, a little something else. Man, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that's the extra like kick in the nuts here is we're just around the corner from April 15th. And it's just like, I, I mean, I know how much I had to pay last year. I know I'm going to have to pay this much this year. And it's just like, they don't, give a shit. they don't care. They don't give a shit about working people. They're, that's, I mean, if you want to be honest about it, that's my problem with like the Washington passing out checks idea is that somehow they think that they deserve to get all the tax dollars out of every single American and then they decide how to repurpose it back to people. It's like, oh, your benevolence. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving, gifting us back these dollars. And it's just outrageous. And they don't even they they take it and they don't even spend it on what it's unbelievable. It's an outrage. I'm ready to spin. Let's get let's get a, a hideously large number. Another smug spin. Okay, let's hit it. Okay. Well, this is a good one. Uh $53 billion to expand Obamacare. Oh no! I think he's leaped past me. Did I? Hold on, hold on. I'm gonna. I had one. I had 129. The first one. You did. I got 86 plus 53. So I'm at 30. 136 here. No, no, you got the 17 billion from the the VA. Oh, it's 17. 17. Yeah. Yeah. So that puts you at 146. 146. Oh man, I'm at 139. Okay, so I got the lead. I got the lead by seven billion. Yeah. So what's what's the what's the uh... there's got to be like a door number two, man. <laughs> Hang on. What, I want to know what was the, the specific that you got? What was the I have I have 86 billion for union pensions, 53 billion for Obamacare. Bringing well, the Obamacare, expan- Obama, Obamacare expansion, which is basically they're going to basically subsidize more of the. Oh, it's Medicaid. Yeah, the ACA premiums and every subsidized Cobra and all that sort of stuff. Remember, 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 remember Obamacare was going to save us all this money, guys. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like the student loan stuff, right? Doesn't yeah. actually change the price of your of your college tuition. Yeah. It just weird. Us on the hook. Weird how that works. Yeah, I got it. So, got it. okay, so I'm leading. 
you're you are leading, but eh, it's a little bit of a lightning round. Let's go. So, um, how do you guys want to handle it? I want door number two. <laughs> I demand that there be a door number two. He loves the doors. You know, he likes the doors. <laughs> I mean, there's no game theory in that. He likes the doors. Makes sense to me. I'll trade. I'll trade my fifty-three billion for 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 another option. Oh, I'll spin. How about that? I'll spin again. Uh, or no, it should be like the higher. I have to give up the eighty-six to spin again. I think this is nonsense. Wow. I think I think what you need to do is make a choice between another spin or door number two. That makes sense. I'll take door number two. <laughs> of course, he loves the doors. <laughs> he loves the doors. So oh, I know no. he held a couple in a bank. Oh no, smug. What's door number two? He went bankrupt. <laughs> he went bankrupt, pal. What was door number two? Door number t- number two is. It gives Planned Parenthood and labor unions access to PPP. <laughs> there's oh, no price tag on it, so it's the bankrupt. It's there's Amazing. something so perfect for loans for abortion. Amazing. The morally bankrupt. Option. Morally bankrupt. <laughs> and now literally bankrupt. Oh my god. Zero. <laughs> so Holmes is the victor. Oh, this is great. I got a two I have a, a two game hot streak, a, a heater as they say. Wow. You have a heater. I love you know what I love about this game is we had to do fucking math. I mean, I've 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 drank an entire bottle of wine this evening, uh, and that was difficult enough. <laughs> I'm confident in the math. I'll take the victory. Well, uh, moderate Jeff, play us out with the music. All right, so we're going to get right into the interview. Elise Stefanik covering all the important issues. A big fan favorite. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, welcome to Ruthless. Great to be with you, Josh. I mean, this is, this is terrific. As you know, you have an awful lot of huge fans uh, within the Minion world. Um, who have been I love demanding. the Minions. <laughs> they have been demanding that you come on Ruthless. Well, I'm happy to be here. The Minions stepped up in big ways when I was under attack by the entire Democratic ecosystem during the first round of impeachment. So I love the Minions and I love the listeners of this podcast. So, well, that's that's terrific. I just do a, a quick backdrop. You were, when you were first elected, I think it is the case that you were the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. Is that right? I will. I was. And I, what's interesting about that, Josh, is I did not know that when I was initially running for office. I only huh. found out about that after I won my primary. And then there was a fair amount of media. And what was really interesting and really inspiring is parents started bringing their young daughters to events that we would have in the district. And a lot uh-huh. of these were non-political families, but they would bring their daughters. So they could see and show an example of a woman cracking glass ceilings whether it's in politics or anything, in business, in industry, you name it. So it's been really humbling and exciting. But that record has been broken, which is a good thing. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, look, that's awesome. And I didn't, I didn't know um, before I started researching a little bit that, that this was uh, your thing. But I knew that you have a huge following amongst young women who idolize your work and think a lot of you. And that has translated to an awful lot of things that you're doing in the House, including recruiting really qualified women to run and win and as Republicans in Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So 2020 was the year of the Republican woman, and it was very, very exciting. We not only shattered expectations and didn't lose a single seat in the House and won every single toss-up, but most of the seats we flipped were flipped by Republican women candidates. And I was proud to be a part of that. When I So going back to when I first ran in 2014, I flipped a district. It was held by a Democrat, flipped it to Republican, and we've won it by double digits ever since. But I was not recruited. In fact, uh, they wanted another candidate to run. And um, I had the fire in the belly, worked really hard, outworked my opponent, walked away winning the primary and the general election. And that experience helped me understand that we needed to, to do better as a Republican Party, really have an 
having an ecosystem to recruit and financially support our strongest candidates who are Republican women. And the 2018 midterms, which we all remember was a really tough and bad year for Republicans, we got wiped out. And a lot of our amazing um, House members who are women lost seats. So we were down to only 13 women in the House. And this was when there was only 100 total women serving. So 13 Republican women, I should specify. And that is not reflective of who we are as a party. That's not reflective of who our voters are. So I made it my mission uh, to use my leadership pack to really focus on recruiting, supporting, and investing in women candidates early. And we didn't support every woman candidate, Josh. We really were strategic in um, having a metrics-based program for candidates to qualify. And uh, Kevin McCarthy supported it. Steve Scalise and the NRCC, to their credit, did as well. And we now have uh, 31 women. So from 13 to 31 in one cycle, that's a huge, huge win. And, you know, success begets success. We've already heard from dozens of women Republican candidates who are looking at some of these must-win seats for us to win the majority. So it's, it's been really exciting. And these women are extraordinary. They have unbelievable personal stories of overcoming adversity, of building businesses, of serving in the military, and they don't get the credit from the mainstream media. You don't see them on the glossy women's fashion magazines, even though they are deserving. Uh, but it's, it's unfortunate that the media loves to only hold up the Democratic women. Part yeah, of the mission totally. is... Yeah, part of the mission of the PAC is trying to elevate Republican women's stories to make sure that people across this country know that the Democratic Party does not have a monopoly on women candidates or women voters. So really exciting, more to come. Yeah, that's great. Well, one of the things that I want to dive into a little bit on this, because I I think, you know, listening to what you said on its face, it sounds like a bunch of, you know, really valuable goals and, and things that, you know, of course, everybody should should want to dive into. But there's a reason why they haven't, because it's hard. It's difficult. You were willing to break China and make this a real priority. And, and one of the things that I really admire about your leadership uh, last cycle and the cycle before is, is you were willing to just not ask for permission to go do and put a program in place and compete in primaries. Because, you know, I mean, look, Republicans in Washington, you never want to get into a primary because it's always, you know, dividing against yourselves and it's just sort of uncomfortable business. And, and, and your point essentially was we're going to support these candidates throughout, whether it's in the primaries and the generals. And ultimately what that meant, meant is electing 18 women to Congress. Yes, 18 new women. And then we supported all of our returning women incumbents. So we thought that was important as well to protect those women members because Democrats and the DCCC are very vicious when it comes to attacking the Republican women. And many of us face tough races, um, including myself this past cycle. So I, I didn't ask for permission, but I was really, really honored that Again, Kevin McCarthy got on board right away. Uh, So did Steve Scalise. And the NRCC saw the success of our program and really made those critical investments when they were most necessary in the general election. And what I always made clear to my colleagues who, you know, maybe got their feathers ruffled a little bit when I announced Mm -hmm. this organization was, look, we are not endorsing women just because they're women. We are going to specifically work to identify the strongest candidates who happen to be Republican women. And I think that model that was based on metrics, forcing candidates to fundraise themselves initially, build an email list, have a strong strategy, how many votes do they need to get, just the basics of putting together a campaign, which you and I know, Josh, a lot of first-time candidates really struggle with. Yeah, we tried right. to put them through their paces to make sure that they, were, they had a path to victory in the primary in general. And the model worked, and um, you know, we're excited now that all these new women can help pay it forward for this next round of candidates. That's just awesome. Well, well, thank you for doing it. First of all, it's been something that we have have needed some leadership internally on for decades, and and you've really taken it on your shoulders. I want to I want to get to some New York politics because I know that this has been a very interesting place uh, to to reside here over the last few months, and and basically since COVID began, uh, you've been very uh, outspoken and a, a critic of Governor Cuomo. 
uh, over the last several months. I think it is the case that you were the first member of the New York delegation to call on Governor Cuomo to resign. Is that is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and for any myriad of reasons, uh, every day you're being proven more right than the day before. Uh, where do you think things stand right now with Governor Cuomo? He has to absolutely resign. There are members of both parties calling for his resignation. I do think it's stunning that Senator Gillibrand and Senator Schumer have turned right. a blind eye, frankly, to his, um, what we now know as pervasive sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and sexual grooming. Um, reading the New York Times article by the second victim, I mean, it makes your skin crawl. Uh, we're talking about the most powerful man in New York. State and arguably one of the most powerful men uh, at the national level in the Democratic Party um, asking wildly inappropriate questions to uh, a young woman in her 20s. Um, in a regular place of work, that individual would be fired without any, you know, with cause. But it goes deeper than this, Josh. It is a culture of corruption at the highest levels of New York state government. And the more you look, the more that is evident. And it all really, um, it goes back actually a long time, but within the past year, since COVID started, the nursing home scandal crisis was ongoing while the governor was being hailed by the mainstream yes. media, while he won his Emmy. Meanwhile, 15,000 New Yorkers lost loved ones because he didn't follow federal guidance and put out an executive edict forcing uh, positive COVID patients into nursing homes, knowing that nursing homes are our most vulnerable seniors. And they covered it up. Um, I was the first elected official to say that this was a criminal cover-up. And again, the left ridiculed me, even members of the press sort of uh, didn't take it as seriously. And now we know because there was an admission on tape of the senior most aide to the governor, the secretary to the governor, that they knowingly withheld that information from the American people, from New Yorkers, and from the Department of Justice, which is an obstruction of justice, a federal crime. Um, that was really the first, within this past year, the first real, you know, the tip of the iceberg that led to, you know, the governor lashing out, which is his typical characteristic when That's he right. threatened to destroy a Democratic member of the Assembly, Ron Kim. That's par for the course in New York politics. Everyone has gotten a call like that from Governor Cuomo. Is that I right? Gotten, I, that, oh, that, yeah. Because I, we had Janice Dean on last week and she talked specifically about her experiences and you know, this guy is just an, an absolute bully. I suspect as outspoken as you have been, uh, you've been on the business end of a few of those too. Oh, his team, they have been vicious and vindictive. Um, for last year, when I stood up against uh, the governor wanted to take ventilators from the National Guard, use the National Guard to forcefully take ventilators from upstate New York to downstate rather than voluntarily allowing hospitals to figure out what they need and then shift resources. I love the effort standing up against that. The attacks and the viciousness that his staff and his team targeted me, I mean, it was the worst I have seen or experienced in, in New York politics. And <laughs> for, representing, for doing nothing more than representing your district. For, for representing my district and Democrats and Republicans agreed. The Democrats upstate agreed with me. It wasn't partisan. It was just don't take from, you know, the vulnerable. I have the most aged district too. The most number of seniors reside in my district in New York state. So you can't take the resources away forcibly with the National Guard. Um, that was, again, a year ago about at this point or a little less than a year ago. And it's just been... Um, a, a real train wreck since then for the governor. But the viciousness is well known, which is why you're seeing more and more elected officials from both parties and his staff come out to really yeah. talk about this culture of abuse, this incessant bullying, belittling. And now we know, I mean, his statement last night, he essentially admitted to sexual harassment and sexual abuse. And it was interesting. He didn't use the term for the individual of the one victim. He said people. So this yeah. means there are more people that are going to come forward. Yeah. That's so the statements that I read, it, it was, it was, I felt like I missed something. 
I mean, there is no way that these are the words that he chose to characterize his interactions with these two young women. And yet he did. And, and in fact, talk about, you know, sort of the, how one of them had been a victim of, of sexual assault. I, I just, it, it just boggled my mind. And I, I, I keep thinking, surely to God, somebody has to do something about this. And I know that people like Ron Kim have, have stood up and within his own party and criticized. And there are staff members, God bless them, who have been brave enough to, to speak truth to power here. There are an awful lot of people wondering, you know, can we beat this guy? And they're, they're looking to you uh, in a lot of ways. Is this something you're considering? Would you ever consider running against Governor Cuomo? I think there's a lot of dynamics going on in New York state politics right now. I think this culture of corruption that really predates this, I mean, this governor has, you know, covered up and and gotten rid of his own commission to investigate corruption. One of his previous senior aides is serving prison time for corruption. Unfortunately, this has been the culture in Albany really my whole life. I mean, this this goes back to when I was a kid. Um, I do think the dynamics are changing. I think he should resign. Um, you know, polit- it, that's, it's less about politics, Josh. It's more about the right things need to happen and, and Democrats need to grow a political spine and speak truth to power on the issue of his corrupt leadership and his, frankly, abusive leadership. Um, I'm focused on running for re-election for the House. I'm focused on raising money for women candidates. A lot of people call us every day, encouraging us to uh, consider it. And, you know, I am involved with down-ballot races at the local level across New York State because I think that's important. Um, And, you know, I think we'll wait. We'll have to wait to see how the dynamics play out. But I'm focused on running for the House. Well, you'd be a heck of a candidate. And I imagine... New York Republicans would lay in traffic to get you to consider that race. So, but I, what I didn't hear there is a, an absolute no. A lot can change. I mean, I think <laughs> again, this governor, can, this governor should resign. Um, right. If he does not resign, there is a path for a Republican to win statewide in New York. And I'm calling for him to resign. Uh, so I want to see that happen. Um, and I, again, am planning on running for the House, but these, these dynamics, as you know, change very quickly. I mean, a, a year ago or only a couple of months ago, Governor Cuomo was hailed inaccurately gotcha. by national Democrats as really the icon. Even President Biden talked about, uh, quote unquote, Cuomo's strong leadership, uh, really the best of the best. And now we know the White House is showing distance significantly between Cuomo uh, and obviously the Biden administration. It's amazing. It really is. One other thing in New York politics I want to get you to weigh in on, a ton of people nationally are talking about whether or not AOC is going to be primarying Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Uh, What's your sense from a New York perspective? I mean, Democrats seem like they've got all the problems in the world in New York, but that, that might be another one. That that would be another one. I mean, I know (laughs) Senator Schumer is working very hard to reach out to the progressive socialist faction uh, in New York. And he, um, you know, he's spending a lot of time trying to build those relationships. I think AOC, you know, she has to wait to see how the districts are drawn. Um, I know there, and as as does everyone in New York State, because we're going through redistricting, uh, I do think that she will continue to be a thorn in the Democratic establishment side, whether it's the Senate race or even whether it's the governor's race or future statewide races. Um, She would be a big challenge to Schumer. And it's interesting to look at the sexual harassment issue of Cuomo through that lens, because AOC was much further ahead than Chuck Uh, really calling out Cuomo. Schumer was very, very slow and frankly did the bare minimum of, um, you know, supporting finally the New York attorney general getting the subpoena power to start an investigation, but he did it after the fact. She was much earlier than that. So that's another one where we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, no, Schumer seems like he's walking a tightrope every day. And so far, his answer has been to go as far left as you can possibly go hoping to deter the AOCs of the world. But I I have to think that Republicans in New York are watching that and wondering if they can also feel the candidate for that race. 
Yes. And, you know, it's easy to focus on the scandals of the moment. But as I was starting going into 2021, thinking about some of the key issues New York is facing that have been building for quite some time. And I think we're facing five crises, you know, and Schumer has been in office over these five crises. And so has Governor Cuomo, the crisis of the population loss. No state has lost more population than New York. It's why we are losing congressional districts. And it's because of the high taxes and progressive policies. We're facing a crisis in security and safety with the highest number of retirement rates from the NYPD, the defund the police proposals from Democrat socialists in New York City, as well as in state government right right now in Albany. We're facing a constitutional crisis in the fact that the governor has all this executive power, this emergency power, and is no longer, frankly, responsible to the people because he doesn't have to go through the legislature anymore. So these two scandals obviously are bombshell scandals in New York, but there's a lot of other long-term crises that people are very frustrated with the status quo in New York. No question. And nationally, and the last bit of national news I'll get to before our three uh, questions at the end is this COVID relief package, which, you know, I, I was saying at the, at the outset, generally speaking, in the first 100 days of a new administration, that's like your one opportunity to do something on a bipartisan basis. And by choosing COVID, they're choosing a topic that President Trump and Republicans were able to pass twice with 90 plus votes in the Senate. And yet here we are with an entirely partisan vote out of the House on late on Saturday night. I'm sure you love that. Um, <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you make of the way Democrats have, have handled this? I think they've completely mishandled it. I think they've also misread the, the desires and the need from the American people. The American people want to see targeted COVID relief, but that doesn't mean slush fund pork projects for Nancy Pelosi. Um, there was absolutely no outreach to Republicans in the House. And yes, President Biden had that one meeting with Republican senators. Meanwhile, his chief of staff was rolling his eyes in the back of the room that many Republican senators, they did not miss that and notice that. So there was no bipartisan outreach. It's a horrible partisan move to have this be your first signature legislative package, especially after the inaugural speech that talks about unifying. As the American people learn more and more about this $1.9 trillion COVID bill, they will see that 90% of the funds have nothing to do with public health. Most of the funds aren't even spent until after this year. So they're appropriating programs in the future that have nothing to do with COVID. And it is a stark contrast. Republicans, we didn't just pass two, we passed five COVID bipartisan bills, almost unanimous last year, that are the reason we have vaccines today, the reason we had the largest economic rescue package for small businesses to keep jobs. So this was a partisan overreach from President Biden. And I think similar to the, I kind of liken this to 2009, after the uh, economic crisis at the mm-hmm. tail end of the Bush administration, President Obama pushed through very partisan proposals, and that led to the 2010 Tea Party wave as people learned more and more about the wasteful spending, and these are taxpayer dollars. People understand that it's their money and their grandkids' money that uh, these Democrats are just spending that have nothing to do with, in this case, COVID relief. So I think as people learn more about this bill, there's going to be a backlash. And it's why Republicans, I think, are in a great position to win the majority and pick up those key seats in the Senate. Yeah, hear, hear. I'm all for that. Um, listen, you've been doing more than your part to have the, the, the party Uh, in particular, women within the Republican Party, well-represented in a position to win. So we thank you for that. I got three really important questions for you, Elise. This is- These uh, are the fun ones. Yeah, this this is where the rubber meets the road and the listeners can understand exactly who you are. (laughs) So here we go. Your last meal on earth, what would it be? I've had a lot of people say, similar to what I'm going to say, I just think back to my mom's cooking. Um, I, I, it's going to be a three-course meal, Josh. So first, <laughs> um, my favorite snack is salsa and chips. I specifically always say salsa and chips, not chips and salsa, because okay. salsa is the most important part of yeah. that meal. See where the That's the warm-up. Yeah. And then I'm going to do uh, crab legs. 
that my dad makes. We usually have those before on Christmas Eve. And then my mom's homemade raviolis. My mom is Italian-American and just makes amazing homemade sauce. So that's a large uh, run the gamut there. That's terrific. (laughs) It does. It goes from salsa and chip snack to, yeah, to seafood. Um, I'm an eclectic eater and I like all types of food. (laughs) I mean, Mexican to Italian with a little seafood in the middle. Exactly. (laughs) That would be my last meal. Well done. Okay. We haven't had that. That, That's as good as it gets. Memorable too. Um, uh, Your second question. If you weren't involved in politics, what would you be doing with your life? That's a good question. You know, when I was a child, my, when people had asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? I would say without hesitation, I'm going to be a Disney animation artist. Now, if you ask me today, that's not what I would say, but that was my sort of childhood. That's the path that I thought I was going. I love Are you Disney. an artist? Can, can you draw and do you have an artistic sense? I am. I'm, I would say I'm fairly artistic, but it's, you know, talk about not having time to do that. Um, I was, though, <laughs> growing up. I was into theater. I was into art um, and just the arts in general as a kid all the way through high school. But I think if you ask me today what I would be doing, I probably would be either a book editor or a book reviewer because I'm a huge reader and um, I, I do make time to do that right now. And similar to my eclectic taste in food, I also have eclectic tastes in books and love, you know, biography, historical fiction, memoir, nonfiction, but I'm a big reader and I make it a mission to spend, you know, some time every day, usually at the end of the day reading. And it's a good escape from the day-to-day news cycle. Lord knows you need that. What are you reading right now? Um, I actually wrote down a couple of my recent reads so that I could share them with the listeners. Oh, good. A couple of the best books that I read this already this year is one is called The Company I Keep by Leonard Lauder, who is um, one of the two sons of Estee Lauder. And it talks about sort of building the Estee Lauder companies from a small family business to a public company. And he gives great advice, both from a business perspective, from a management perspective, but just general leadership. And another great book, I I just finished this one, is called Save Me the Plums. And this was a memoir from the last editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine and talks about, you know, her love of food, but also the the changes in the print media and magazine world over the past, you know, challenging 10 years. Um, So you can see the eclectic nature of what I like to read. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's that's great stuff. Um, All right. At least we're going to get to the last uh, question here, which is really the most important in the Ruthless Variety program. And it is, what motivates you more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Um, I run to win. Everyone on my team knows that. My grassroots supporters know that. I do not run to lose. And we run to win big. We don't run single-digit races. um, And I... I'm a competitive person by nature. Um, I, so I, I don't know if I'm answering that question the best way, but I, I value actually being underestimated. I think I've been underestimated a lot in my career, going back to my first race, to going through impeachment, where we totally surged when people were ready to leave us on the side of the road for politically dead, and we excelled getting through that. Uh, and and the success of EPAC. So I guess it's the thrill of winning and then keeping my promises to my constituents and doing a good job and getting rehired because they have the choice to do that every two years. Um, very, and I also very, that, that's the, a very comprehensive and terrific insight because you know <laughs> I mean, this is the most revealing question we have, and I, it seems to me like you've given it as much thought as as anybody out there. Maybe not as much thought as you've given to your last meal, but but certainly some thought. <laughs> Well, these three questions are fun. I always like these sort of non-traditional, non-day-to-day politics questions because you can learn a lot about people. You can. That's why we do it. Well, listen, Elise, I I can't thank you enough for coming on the program. As you know, a lot of people uh, that listen are are huge fans of yours. I hope that if you decide that you want to run for governor, you want to run for Senate, or even if you just run for re-election, that you can come on again and, uh, and talk to us about that. 
Love it. Will do. And thank you to all the listeners of Ruthless. Thank you to all the minions. And thank you to Smug, who stood us up. He stood, he stood you up. And, and the thing is, we're going to make that a big part portion of the program. I mean, I, I, I frankly think he's offended you. And I'm sorry about that. He is. No offense, Josh. I was really looking forward to meeting Smug on this call. I know it. He's an elusive character. You, you know, you can't see him anyway. So I'll, I'll save you the time and, uh, and we'll address it directly with him. Good. <laughs> Congresswoman Stefanik, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. So there she is. I think that, I think, look, far be it for me to take the news uh, angle of this because I think she offered a lot of really good content and provided people with a deep understanding of what it is that she's been up to in the political context and helping House Republicans get really, really good people elected. Um, but she didn't rule out running against Cuomo. She should run. That was a great interview. She should run. I, I'm with it. Right? Excellent interview. A fan favorite. That, you know, we, we had we had we had we had the minions asking get a least on the show. She came through with it. She delivers for the people. You and demand it, we deliver she's, it. She's been she's been really banging the drum on the Cuomo stuff, which I appreciate. Thank God. I appreciate because like there's two sides to this. There's there's the Janice Deans of the world who, you know, I mean God love her. She had her her in-laws both die in those nursing homes. And Cuomo's writing a fucking book, mm-hmm. you know? And so she has the she has the ability to to a platform to get out there and talk about it. And then you got people like Elise who you know have have the SWAT being a member of Congress. And so I think like those two sides of it is what's important, you know? Huge. Totally agree. Totally agree. Great stuff, folks. Smug. Another uh, strong episode. Great, great job, everybody. Good, good game show, Duncan. Great interview on that one, Holmes. So, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.